0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. I've been catching up on the stories of one of my favorite writers, Jack London, and came across The Cruise of the Snark, one of his novels, and thought you might be interested in hearing two of the beginning chapters of this great adventure. Chapter 1, Forward, and Chapter 3, Adventure. London was at the peak of his career when he wrote that. He was married to Charmian, and living pretty comfortably at their ranch in Northern California, still writing and in demand for his stories. Charmian and he were very much alike. In spite of the comfort and security of the ranch, she longed for adventure as much as he did, and somehow they hatched the idea to build a sailing vessel that could take them to Hawaii and other islands on a two-year voyage. Chapter One, The Forward, explains how the idea took place, And chapter 3 takes place after he sunk a lot of money and work into the boat, and it's finally ready for the voyage. And a magazine that he writes for puts a notice out that he's seeking a cook and cabin boy. And that notice receives a tremendous response from persons of all ages, from all places. The yearning for the adventure of a lifetime exists in most people, I believe, and when that chance comes, you know it. And you know it when it passes you by. If you'd like to hear the whole story, maybe this year at 1001 Stories for the Road, where we do our long-format classics. And now, The Cruise of the Snark. Chapter 1 Forward and Chapter 3, Adventure. It began in the swimming pool at Glen Ellen. Between swims, it was our wont to come out and lie in the sand and let our skins breathe the warm air and soak in the sunshine. Roscoe was a yachtsman. I had followed the sea a bit, it was inevitable that we should talk about boats. We talked about small boats and the seaworthiness of small boats. We instanced Captain Slocum and his three-year voyage around the world in the spray. We asserted that we were not afraid to go around the world in a small boat, say, 40 feet long. We asserted, furthermore, that we would like to do it. We asserted, finally, that there was nothing in this world we liked better than a chance to do it. Let us do it. "'we said, in fun. "'Then I asked Charmian privately "'if she'd really care to do it, "'and she said it would be too good to be true. "'The next time we breathed our skins in the sand "'by the swimming pool, I said to Roscoe, "'Let us do it.' "'I was in earnest, and so was he, for he said, "'When do we start?' "'I had a house to build on the ranch, "'also an orchard, a vineyard, and several hedges to plant.' "'and a number of other things to do. "'We thought we would start in four or five years. "'Then the lure of the adventure began to grip us. "'Why not start at once? "'We'd never be younger, any of us. "'Let the orchard, vineyard, and hedges be growing up while we were away. "'When we came back, they'd be ready for us, "'and we could live in the barn while we built the house. "'So the trip was decided upon, and the building of the snark began.' We named it the snark because we could not think of any other name. Our friends cannot understand why we make this voyage. They shudder and moan and raise their hands. No amount of explanation can make them comprehend that we are moving along the line of least resistance, that it is easier for us to go down to the sea in a small ship than to remain on dry land, just as it is easier for them to remain on dry land than go down to the sea in the small ship. This state of mind comes of an undue prominence of the ego. They cannot get away from themselves. They cannot come out of themselves long enough to see that their line of least resistance is not necessarily everybody else's line of least resistance. They make of their own bundle of desires, likes, and dislikes a yardstick wherewith to measure the desires, likes, and dislikes of all creatures. This is unfair. I tell them so, but they cannot get away from their own miserable egos long enough to hear me. They think I'm crazy. In return, I'm sympathetic. It is a state of mind familiar to me. We are all prone to think there is something wrong with the mental processes of the man who disagrees with us. The ultimate word is, I like. It lies beneath philosophy and is twined about the heart of life. When philosophy has maundered ponderously for a month, telling the individual what he must do, the individual says in an instant, I like, and does something else, and philosophy goes glimmering. It is, I like, that makes the drunkard drink and the martyr wear a hair shirt, that makes one man a reveler and another man an anchorite, that makes one man pursue fame, another gold, another love, and another god. Philosophy is very often a man's way of explaining his own I like. But to return to the snark, and why, I, for one, want to journey in her round the world. The things I like constitute my set of values. The thing I like most of all is personal achievement. Not achievement for the world's applause, but achievement for my own delight. It is the old, I did it, I did it. With my own hands, I did it. But personal achievement, with me, must be concrete. I'd rather win a water fight in the swimming pool, or remain astride a horse that's trying to get out from under me, than write the great American novel. Each man to his liking. Some other fellow would prefer writing the great American novel to winning the water fight or mastering the horse. Possibly the proudest achievement of my life, "'My moment of highest living occurred when I was seventeen. "'I was in a 3 masted schooner off the coast of Japan. "'We were in a typhoon. "'All hands had been on deck most of the night. "'I was called from my bunk at seven in the morning to take the wheel. "'Not a stitch of canvas was set. "'We were running before it under bare poles, "'yet the schooner fairly tore along. "'The seas were all of an eighth of a mile apart.' and the wind snatched the whitecaps from their summits, filling the air so thick with the driving spray that it was impossible to see more than two waves at a time. The schooner was almost unmanageable, rolling her rail under to starboard and to port, veering and yawing anywhere between southeast and southwest, and threatening, when the huge seas lifted under her quarter, to broach too. Had she broached too, she would ultimately have been reported lost with all hands and no tidings. I took the wheel. The sailing master watched me for a space. He was afraid of my youth, feared that I lacked the strength and the nerve. But when he saw me successfully wrestle the schooner through several bouts, he went below to breakfast. Fore and aft, all hands were below at breakfast. Had she broached two, not one of them would ever have reached the deck. For forty minutes I stood there, alone at the wheel, in my grasp the wildly careening schooner and the lives of twenty-two men, Once we were pooped. I saw it coming, and, half drowned with tons of water crushing me, I checked the schooner's rush to broach to. At the end of the hour, sweating and played out, I was relieved. But I had done it. With my own hands I had done my trick at the wheel and guided a hundred tons of wood and iron through a few million tons of wind and waves. My delight was in that I had done it not the fact that twenty-two men knew I had done it. Within the year, over half of them were dead and gone, yet my pride in the thing performed was not diminished by half. I am willing to confess, however, that I do like a small audience, but it must be a very small audience composed of those who love me and whom I love. When I then accomplish personal achievement, I have a feeling that I am justifying their love for me. But this is quite apart from the delight of the achievement itself. This delight is peculiarly my own and does not depend upon witnesses. When I've done some such thing, I'm exalted. I glow all over. I'm aware of a pride in myself that is mine and mine alone. It is organic. Every fiber of me is thrilling with it. It's very natural. It is a mere matter of satisfaction at adjustment to environment. It is success. Life that lives is life successful, and success is the breadth of its nostrils. The achievement of a difficult feat is successful adjustment to a sternly exacting environment. The more difficult the feat, the greater the satisfaction at its accomplishment. Thus it is with the man who leaps forward from the springboard, out over the swimming pool, and with a backward half-revolution of the body, enters the water first. Once he leaves the springboard, his environment becomes immediately savage, and savage the penalty it will exact should he fail and strike the water flat. Of course, the man does not have to run the risk of the penalty. He could remain on the bank in a sweet and placid environment of summer air, sunshine, and stability. Only he is not made that way. In that swift mid-air movement, he lives as he could never live on the bank. As for myself, I'd rather be that man than the fellows who sit on the bank and watch him. That is why I'm building the snark. I am so made. I like. That is all. The trip around the world means big moments of living. Bear with me a moment and look at it. Here I am, a little animal called a man, a bit of vitalized matter, 165 pounds of meat and blood, nerve, sinew, bones and brain, all of it soft and tender, susceptible to hurt, fallible, and frail. I strike a light backhanded blow on the nose of an obstreperous horse, and a bone in my hand is broken. I put my head underwater for five minutes, and I'm drowned. I fall twenty feet through the air, and I'm smashed. I'm a creature of temperature, a few degrees one way, and my fingers and ears and toes blacken and drop off. A few degrees the other way, and my skin blisters and shrivels away from the raw, quivering flesh. A few additional degrees either way, and the life and the light in me go out. A drop of poison injected into my body from a snake, and I cease to move. Forever I cease to move. A splinter of lead from a rifle enters my head, and I'm wrapped around in the eternal blackness. Fallible and frail. A bit of pulsating, jelly-like life. That's all I am. About me are the great natural forces, colossal menaces, titans of destruction, unsentimental monsters that have less concern for me than I have for the grain of sand I crush under my foot. They have no concern at all for me. They do not know me. They are unconscious, unmerciful, and unmoral. They are the cyclones and tornadoes, lightning flashes and cloudbursts, tide rips and tidal waves, undertows and water spouts, great whirls and sucks and eddies, earthquakes and volcanoes, surfs that thunder on rock-ribbed coasts and seas that leap aboard the largest crafts that float, crushing humans to pulp or licking them off into the sea and to death. And these insensate monsters do not know the tiny sensitive creature, all nerves and weaknesses, whom men call Jack London and who himself thinks he's all right, in the maze and chaos of the conflict of these vast and draughty titans, it is for me to thread my precarious way. The bit of life that is I will exult over them. The bit of life that is I, in so far as it exceeds in baffling them or in bidding them to its service, will imagine that it is godlike. It is good to ride the tempest and feel godlike. I dare to assert that for a finite speck of pulsating jelly to feel godlike, is a far more glamorous feeling than for a god to feel godlike. Here is the sea, the wind, and the wave. Here are the seas, the winds, and the waves of all the world. Here is a ferocious environment, and here is difficult adjustment, the achievement of which is delight to the small, quivering vanity that is I. I like. I am so made. It is my own particular form of vanity, that's all. There is also another side to the voyage of the snark. Being alive, I want to see, and all the world is a bigger thing to see than one small town or valley. We have done little outlining of the voyage. Only one thing is definite, and that is that our first port of call will be Honolulu. Beyond a few general ideas, we have no thought of our next port after Hawaii. We shall make up our minds as we get nearer. In a general way, we know that we shall wander through the South Seas, Take in Samoa, New Zealand, Tasmania, Australia, New Guinea, Borneo, and Sumatra, and go on up to the Philippines to Japan. Then will come Korea, China, India, the Red Sea, and the Mediterranean. After that, the voyage becomes too vague to describe, though we know a number of things we shall surely do, and we expect to spend from one to several months in every country in Europe. The Snark is to be sailed. There will be a gasoline engine on board, but it will be used only in case of emergency, such as in bad water among reefs and shoals, where a sudden calm and a swift current leaves a sailing boat helpless. The rig of the snark is to be what is called the ketch. The ketch rig is a compromise between the yawl and the schooner. Of late years, the yawl rig has proved the best for cruising. The ketch retains the cruising virtues of the yawl, and in addition manages to embrace a few of the sailing virtues of the schooner. The foregoing must be taken with a pinch of salt. It is all theory in my head. I've never sailed a ketch, nor even seen one. The theory commends itself to me. Wait till I get out on the ocean, then I'll be able to tell more about the cruising and sailing qualities of the ketch. As originally planned, the snark was to be forty feet long on the waterline. But we discovered there was no space for the bathroom, and for that reason we have increased her length to 45 feet. Her greatest beam is 15 feet. She has no house and no hold. There is six feet of headroom, and the deck is unbroken save for two companionways and a hatch forward. The fact that there is no house to bring the strength of the deck will make us feel safer in case great seas thunder their tons of water down on board. A large and roomy cockpit. "'Sunk beneath the deck with high rail and self-bailing "'will make our rough-weather days and nights more comfortable. "'There will be no crew. "'Or rather, Charmian, Roscoe, and I are the crew. "'We are going to do the thing with our own hands. "'With our own hands we're going to circumnavigate the globe. "'Sailor or sinker, with our own hands, we'll do it. "'Of course there will be a cook and a cabin boy. "'Why should we stew over a stove?' wash dishes, and set the table. We could stay on land if we wanted to do those things. Besides, we've got to stand to watch and work the ship. And also, I've got to work at my trade of writing in order to feed us and to get new sails and tackle and keep the snark in efficient working order. And then there's the ranch. I've got to keep the vineyard, orchard, and hedges growing. When we increase the length of the snark in order to get space for a bathroom, we found that all the space was not required by the bathroom. Because of this, we increased the size of the engine. Seventy horsepower our engine is, and since we expect it to drive us along at a nine-knot clip, we do not know the name of the river with a current swift enough to defy us. We expect to do a lot of inland work. The smallness of the snark makes this possible. When we enter the land, out go the mast, and on goes the engine. There are the canals of China, and the Yangtze River. We shall spend months on them if we can get permission from the government. That will be the one obstacle to our inland voyaging, governmental permission. But if we can get that permission, there is scarcely a limit to the inland voyaging we can do. When we come to the Nile, why, we can go up the Nile. We can go up the Danube to Vienna, up the Thames to London, and we can go up the Seine to Paris and more opposite the Latin Quarter with a bow line out to Notre-Dame, and a stern line fast to the Morgue. We can leave the Mediterranean and go up the Rhône to Lyon, there into the Seine, cross from the Seine to the Maine through the Canal de Bourgogne, and from the Marne enter the Seine and go out the Seine at Habra. When we cross the Atlantic to the United States, we can go up the Hudson, pass through the Erie Canal, cross the Great Lakes, leave Lake Michigan at Chicago, gain the Mississippi by way of the Illinois River, and the connecting canal, and go down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. And then there are the great rivers of South America. We'll know something about geography when we get back to California. People that build houses are often sore perplexed, but if they enjoy the strain of it, I'll advise them to build a boat like the Snark. Just consider for a moment the strain of detail. Take the engine. What is the best kind of engine? The two-cycle, three-cycle, four-cycle? My lips are mutilated with all kinds of strange jargon. My mind is mutilated with still stranger ideas and is footsore and weary from traveling in new and rocky realms of thought. Ignition methods. Shall it be make and break or jump spark? Shall dry cells or storage batteries be used? A storage battery commends itself, but it requires a dynamo. How powerful a dynamo! And when we have installed a dynamo and a storage battery, it is simply ridiculous not to light the boat with electricity. Then comes the discussion of how many lights and how many candle power. It is a splendid idea. But electric lights will demand a more powerful storage battery, which in turn demands a more powerful dynamo. And now that we've gone in for it, why not have a searchlight? It would be tremendously useful. But the searchlight needs so much electricity that when it runs, it will put all the other lights out of commission. Again, we travel the weary road in the quest after more power for storage battery and dynamo. And then, when it's finally solved, someone asks, What if the engine breaks down? And we collapse. There are the sidelights, the binnacle light, and the anchor light. Our very lives depend upon them. "'so we have to fit the boat throughout with oil lamps as well. "'But we're not done with that engine yet. "'The engine is powerful. "'We are two small men and a small woman. "'It will break our hearts and our backs to hoist anchor by hand. "'Let the engine do it. "'And then comes the problem of how to convey power forward "'from the engine to the winch. "'And by the time all this is settled, "'we redistribute the allotments of space to the engine room, "'galley, bathroom, staterooms, and cabin.' and begin all over again. And when we've shifted the engine, I send off a telegram of gibberish to its makers at New York, something like this. Toggle joint, abandoned charge, thrust bearing accordingly distance from forward side of flywheel to face of stern post, 16 feet 6 inches. Just potter around in quest of a best steering gear, or try to decide whether you will set up your rigging with old-fashioned lanyards or with turnbuckles, if you want strain of detail. Then there's the problem of gasoline, 1,500 gallons of it. What are the safest ways to tank it and pipe it? And which is the best fire extinguisher for a gasoline fire? Then there's the pretty problem of a lifeboat and the stowage of the same. And when that is furnished, come the cook and cabin boy to confront one with nightmare possibilities. It is a small boat, and we'll be packed close together. The servant-girl problem of landsmen pales to insignificance. "'We did select one cabin boy, "'and by that much were our troubles eased. "'And then the cabin boy fell in love "'and resigned. "'And in the meanwhile, "'how is a fellow to find time to study navigation "'when he's divided between these problems "'and the earning of the money wherewith "'to settle the problems? "'Neither Roscoe nor I knew anything about navigation. "'And the summer is gone, "'and we're about to start, "'and the problems are thicker than ever, "'and the treasury is stuffed with emptiness.' Well, anyway, it takes years to learn seamanship, and both of us are seamen. If we don't find the time, we'll lay in the books and instruments and teach ourselves navigation on the ocean between San Francisco and Hawaii. Roscoe is a masterful man. While well, we've got it, and the dynamo, and the storage battery. Why not have an ice machine? Ice in the tropics? It is more necessary than bread. Here goes for the ice machine. Now I'm plunged into chemistry, and my lips hurt, and my mind hurts. And how am I ever to find the time to study navigation? Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. No, adventure is not dead, and, in spite of the steam engine, and of Thomas Cook and son. When the announcement of the contemplated voyage of the snark was made, young men of roving disposition proved to be legion, and young women as well, to say nothing of the elderly men and women who volunteered for the voyage. Why, among my personal friends there were at least half a dozen who regretted their recent or imminent marriages, and there was one marriage I know of that almost failed to come off, because of the snark. Every mail to me was burdened with the letters of applicants who were suffocating in the man stifled towns, and it soon dawned upon me that a twentieth century Ulysses required a corps of stenographers to clear his correspondence before setting sail. No, adventure is certainly not dead, not while one receives letters that begin, quote, There is no doubt that when you read this soul play from a female stranger in New York City, end quote, etc., and wherein one learns, a little farther on, that this female stranger weighs only ninety pounds, wants to be a cabin boy, and yearns to see the countries of the world. The possession of a passionate fondness for geography was the way one applicant expressed the wanderlust that was in him, while another wrote, I am cursed with an eternal yearning to always be on the move. Consequently, this letter to you. But best of all was the fellow who said he wanted to come because his feet itched. There were a few who wrote anonymously, suggesting names of friends, and giving said friends qualifications. But to me, there was a hint of something sinister in such proceedings, and I went no further in the matter. With two or three exceptions, all the hundreds that volunteered for my crew were very much in earnest. Many of them sent their photographs. Ninety percent. Ninety percent offered to work in any capacity and ninety-nine percent offered to work without a salary. "'Contemplating your voyage on the snark,' said one, and notwithstanding its attendant dangers, to accompany you in any capacity whatsoever would be the climax of my ambitions. Which reminds me of the young fellow who was seventeen years old and ambitious, and who, at the end of his letter, earnestly requested, "'But please do not let this get into the papers or magazines.' "'Quite different was the one who said, "'I would be willing to work like hell "'and not demand pay. "'Almost all of them wanted me to telegraph "'at their expense my acceptance of their services, "'and quite a number offered to put up a bond "'to guarantee their appearance on sailing day. "'Some were rather vague in their own minds "'concerning the work to be done on the snark, "'as, for instance, the one who wrote, "'I am taking the liberty of writing you this note "'to find out if there would be any possibility "'of my going with you,' as one of the crew of your boat, to make sketches and illustrations. Several, unaware of the needful work on a small craft like this snark, offered to serve, as one of them phrased it, as assistant in finding materials collected for books and novels. That's what one gets for being prolific. Let me give my qualifications for the job, wrote one. I am an orphan living with my uncle, who is a hot revolutionary socialist, and who says a man without the red blood of adventure as an animated dishrag. Said another, I can swim some, though I don't know any of the new strokes. But what is more important than strokes, the water is a friend of mine. If I was put alone in a sailboat, I could get her anywhere I wanted to go, was the qualification of a third. And a better qualification than the one that follows, I've also watched the fish boats unload but possibly the prize should go to this one, who very subtly conveys his deep knowledge of the world and life by saying, My age, in years, is twenty-two. Then there were the simple, straight-out, homely, and unadorned letters of young boys, lacking in the felicities of expression, it is true, but desiring greatly to make the voyage. These were the hardest of all to decline, and each time I declined one, it seemed as if I'd struck youth a slap in the face. They were so earnest, These boys, they wanted so much to go. I am sixteen, but large for my age, said one. And another? Seventeen, but large and healthy. Another, I am as strong at least as the average boy of my size. Not afraid of any kind of work, was what many said, while one in particular, to lure me no doubt by inexpensiveness, wrote, I could pay my way to the Pacific coast, so that part would probably be acceptable to you. "'Going around the world is the one thing I want to do,' said one, "'and it seemed to be the one thing that a few hundred wanted to do. "'I have no one who cares whether I go or not,' "'was the pathetic note sounded by another. "'One had sent his photograph, and speaking of it said, "'I'm a homely-looking sort of a chap, but looks don't always count. "'And I am confident that the lad who wrote the following "'would have turned out all right. "'My age is nineteen years.' but I'm rather small and consequently won't take up much room. But I'm as tough as the devil. And then there was one 13-year-old applicant that Charmian and I fell in love with and it nearly broke our hearts to refuse him. But it must not be imagined that most of my volunteers were boys. On the contrary, boys constituted a very small proportion. There were men and women from every walk of life. Physicians, surgeons, and dentists offered in large numbers to come along and, like all the professional men, offered to come without pay, serve in any capacity, and to pay, even, for the privilege of so serving. There was no end of compositors and reporters who wanted to come, to say nothing of experienced valets, chefs, and stewards. Civil engineers were keen on the voyage. Lady companions galore cropped up for Charmian. Well, I was eluged with applications of would-be private secretaries. Many high school and university students yearned for the voyage, and every trade in the working class developed a few applicants, the machinists, electricians, and engineers being especially strong on the trip. I was surprised at the number who, in the musty law offices, heard the call of adventure, and I was more than surprised by the number of elderly and retired sea captains who were still thralls to the sea. Several young fellows, with millions coming to them later on, were wild for the adventure, as were also several county superintendents of schools. Fathers and sons wanted to come, and many men with their wives, to say nothing of the young woman stenographer who wrote, Write immediately if you need me, I shall bring my typewriter on the first train. But the best of all is the following. Observe the delicate way in which he worked in his wife. He wrote, I thought I would drop you a line of inquiry as to the possibility of making the trip with you, I'm twenty-four years of age, married, and broke, and a trip of that kind would be just what we're looking for. Come to think of it, for the average man, it must be fairly difficult to write an honest letter of self-recommendation. One of my correspondents was so stumped that he began his letter with the words, This is a hard task. And, after vainly trying to describe his good points, he wound up with, It is a hard job writing about oneself. Nevertheless, there was one who gave himself a most glowing and lengthy character, and in conclusion stated that he had greatly enjoyed writing it. But suppose this, your cabin boy could run your engine, could repair it when out of order. Suppose he could take his turn at the wheel, could do any carpenter or machinist work. Suppose he is strong, healthy, and willing to work. Would you not rather have him than a kid that gets seasick and can't do anything but wash dishes? It was letters of this sort that I hated to decline. The writer of it, self-taught in English, had been only two years in the United States, and, as he said, I am not wishing to go with you to earn my living, but I wish to learn and see. At the time of writing to me, he was a designer for one of the big motor manufacturing companies. He had been to sea quite a bit, and had been used all his life to the handling of small boats. I have a good position, "'But it matters not so with me "'as I prefer traveling,' "'wrote another. "'As to salary, look at me. "'And if I'm worth a dollar or two, "'all right. "'And if I'm not, nothing said. "'As to my honesty and character, "'I shall be pleased to show you my employers. "'I never drink, no tobacco. "'But to be honest, "'I myself, after a little more experience, "'want to do a little writing. "'I can assure you "'that I am eminently respectable.' but find other respectable people, tiresome. The man who wrote the foregoing certainly had me guessing, and I'm still wondering whether or not he'd have found me tiresome, or what the deuce he did mean. I've seen better days than what I'm passing through today, wrote an old salt, but I've seen them a great deal worse also. But the willingness to sacrifice on the part of the man who wrote the following was so touching that I could not accept. I have a father, a mother, brothers and sisters, dear friends, and a lucrative position. And yet I will sacrifice all to become one of your crew. Another volunteer I could never have accepted was the finicky young fellow who, to show me how necessary it was that I should give him a chance, pointed out that to go in the ordinary boat, be it schooner or steamer, would be impracticable, for I would have to mix among and live with the ordinary type of seamen, which as a rule is not a clean sort of life. Then there was the young fellow of twenty-six who had run through the gamut of human emotions and had done everything from cooking to attending Stanford University, and who at the present writing was a vaquero on a fifty-five thousand acre range. Quite in contrast was the modesty of the one who said, I am not aware of possessing any particular qualities that would be likely to recommend me to your consideration. But should you be impressed, you might consider it worth a few minutes' time to answer. Otherwise, there's always work at the trade. Not expecting, but hoping. I remain, etc. But I've held my head in both my hands ever since, trying to figure out the intellectual kinship between myself and the one who wrote. Long before I knew of you, I had mixed political economy and history and deducted there from many of your conclusions in concrete. Here, in its way, is one of the best, as it is the briefest that I received. If any of the present company signed on for the cruise happens to get cold feet, and you need one more who understands boating, engines, etc., would like to hear from you, etc. Here's another brief one. Point blank. Would like to have the job of cabin boy on your trip around the world, or any other job on board. I'm 19 years old, weigh 140 pounds, and I'm an American. And here's a good one from a man who wrote he was a little over five feet long. When I read about your manly plan of sailing around the world in a small boat with Mrs. London, I was so much rejoiced that I felt I was planning it myself, and I thought to write you about filling either position of cook or cabin boy myself, but for some reason I did not do it. And I came to Denver from Oakland to join my friend's business last month. But everything is worse and unfavorable. But fortunately you have postponed your departure "'on account of the great earthquake, "'so I finally decided to propose you to let me fill "'either of the positions. "'I'm not very strong, being a man of little over five feet long, "'although I am of sound health and capability. "'I think I can add to your outfit "'an additional method of utilizing the power of the wind,' "'wrote another well-wisher, "'which, while not interfering with ordinary sails in light breezes, "'will enable you to use the whole force of the wind "'in its mightiest blows.' so that even when its force is so great that you may have to take in every inch of canvas used in every ordinary way, you may carry the fullest spread with my method. With my attachment, your craft could never be upset. The foregoing letter was written in San Francisco under the date of April 16, 1906. And two days later, on April eighteenth, came the great earthquake. And that's why I've got it in for that earthquake, for it made a refugee out of the man who wrote the letter and prevented us from ever getting together. One wanderer over the world who could, if opportunity afforded, recount many unusual scenes and events, spent several pages ardently trying to get to the point of his letter, and at last achieved the following. Still I am neglecting the point that I set to write you about. So I will say at once that it has been stated in print that you and one or two others are going to take a cruise around the world in a little fifty or sixty foot boat. I therefore cannot get myself to think that a man of your attainments and experience would attempt such a proceeding, which is nothing less than courting death in that way. And even if you were to escape for some time, your whole person and those with you would be bruised from the ceaseless motion of the craft of the above size, even if she were padded. A thing not usual at sea. Thank you, kind friend. Thank you for that qualification. A thing not usual at sea. Nor is this friend ignorant of the sea as he says of himself, I'm not a landlubber, and I've sailed every sea and ocean. And he winds up his letter with, although not wishing to offend, it would be madness to take any woman outside the bay, even, in such a craft. And yet, at the moment of writing this, is in her state room at the typewriter, Martin is cooking dinner, Tochigi is setting the table, Roscoe and Bert are caulking the deck, and the snark is steering herself some five knots an hour in a rattling good sea. "'and the snark is not padded, either. "'Seeing a piece in the paper about your intended trip, "'would like to know if you would like a good crew, "'as there are six of us boys, all good sailormen, "'with good discharges from the Navy and Merchant Service, "'all true Americans, all between the ages of twenty and twenty-two, "'and at present are employed as riggers at the Union Iron Works, "'and would like very much to sail with you. "'It was letters like this that made me regret the boat was not larger.' And here writes to one woman in all the world, outside of Charmian, for the cruise. If you have not succeeded in getting a cook, I would like very much to take the trip in that capacity. I am a woman of fifty, healthy and capable, and can do the work for the small company that compose the crew of the snark. I'm a very good cook, and a very good sailor, and something of a traveler, and the length of the voyage, if of ten years' duration, would suit me better than one. References available. Some day, when I made a lot of money, I'm going to build a big ship with room in it for a thousand volunteers. They will have to do all the work of navigating that boat around the world, or they'll stay at home. I believe that they'll work the boat around the world, for I know that adventure is not dead. I know adventure is not dead because I've had a long and ultimate correspondence with adventure. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. I hope you like this preview of The Voyage of the Snark. Thanks for joining us, everyone, at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with a brand new episode. We'll see you then.